There are many people who make a lot of money who fall into this category. They earn a lot and spend more than they earn. I have a friend who looks very rich. He has a good job as a real estate broker, a beautiful wife, and three kids in private school. They live in a beautiful house overlooking the Pacific Ocean in San Diego. He and his wife drive expensive European cars. When his son and daughters were old enough, they too drove expensive cars. They looked rich, but what they had was bad debt. They looked rich, but were poorer than most poor people. Now they are homeless. When the real estate market crashed, they crashed. They were no longer able to pay the interest on all the debt they had accumulated. When we were younger, this same friend made a lot of money. Unfortunately, it was his low financial intelligence level, zero, that caused him to be a zero over the long run. In fact, he is so deeply in debt that he is really a sub-zero investor. Like many people, everything he buys loses value or costs him money. Nothing he buys makes him richer. Two, the savers are losers level. Many people believe it is smart to save money. The problem is that today money is no longer money. Today people are saving counterfeit dollars, money that can be created at the speed of light. In 1971, President Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, and money became debt. The primary reason why prices have risen since 1971 is simply because the United States now has the power to print money to pay its bills. Today, savers are the biggest losers. Since 1971, the U.S. dollar has lost 95 percent of its value when compared to gold. It will not take another 40 years to lose its remaining 5 percent. Remember, in 1971. Gold was thirty-five dollars an ounce. Forty years later, gold was fourteen hundred dollars an ounce. That is a massive loss of purchasing power for the dollar. The problem grows worse as the U.S. national debt escalates into the trillions of dollars, and the U.S. continues to print more counterfeit money. As the Federal Reserve Bank and central banks throughout the world print trillions of dollars at high speed. Every printed dollar means higher taxes and more inflation. In spite of this fact, millions of people continue to believe saving money is smart. It used to be smart when money was money. The biggest market in the world is the bond market. Bond is another word for savings. There are many different types of bonds for different types of savers. There are U.S. Treasury bonds, corporate bonds. Municipal bonds and junk bonds. For years, it was assumed that U.S. government bonds and government municipal bonds were safe. Then the financial crisis of 2007 began. As many of you know, the crisis was caused by mortgage bonds such as mortgage-backed securities or MBS, also known as derivatives. Millions of these mortgage bonds were made up of subprime mortgages. Which were loans to subprime or high-risk borrowers. You may recall that some of those borrowers had no income and no job, yet they were buying homes they could never pay for. The Wall Street bankers took these subprime loans and packaged them into bonds, magically got this subprime bond labeled as prime, and sold them to institutions, banks, 
governments, and individual investors. To me, this is fraud, but that is the banking system. Once the subprime borrower could no longer pay the interest on their mortgages, these MBS bonds began blowing up all over the world. Interestingly, it was Warren Buffett's firm, Moody's, that blessed these subprime mortgages as AAA prime debt, the highest rating for bonds. Today, many people blame the big banks, such as Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, for the crisis. Yet if anyone should be blamed for this crisis, it should be Warren Buffett. He is a smart man, and he knew what he was doing. Moody's was blessing rotting dog meat as grade-A prime beef. That is criminal. The problem is that these subprime bonds are now causing ripple effects all over the world. Today, countries such as Ireland and Greece are in serious trouble, unable to pay the interest on their bonds. In the United States, governments and municipalities are going broke, unable to pay the interest on their bonds. In 2011, millions of individuals, many retirees, pension funds, governments, and banks are in trouble as the bond market proves how unsafe bonds can be. On top of that, rising inflation makes bonds an even riskier investment, which is why savers who only know how to save are losers. For example, if a bond is paying 3% interest and inflation is running at 5%, the value of a 3% bond crashes, wiping out investors' value. China could be the biggest loser of all. China holds a trillion dollars in U.S. bonds. Every time the U.S. government devalues the dollar by printing more money and issuing more bonds, the value of China's trillion-dollar investment in the United States goes down. If China stops buying U.S. government bonds, the world economy will stop and crash. Millions of retirees are just like China. Retirees in need of a steady income after retirement believed government bonds were safe. Today, as governments, big and small, go bust and inflation rises, retirees are finding out that savers who saved money in bonds are losers. Municipal bonds are IOUs issued by states, cities, hospitals, schools, and other public institutions. One advantage of municipal bonds is that many are tax-free income. The problem is that municipal bonds are not risk-free. Millions of municipal bond investors are now finding out that the municipal bonds they invested in are in serious trouble. In the United States, more than $3 trillion is invested in municipal bonds. It is estimated that two-thirds of those bonds are now at risk because these public institutions are broke. If more money is not pumped in, the United States could implode from the center as states, cities, hospitals, and schools begin to default, just as subprime homeowners defaulted and stopped paying on their home mortgages. The bond market is the biggest market in the world, bigger than the stock market or the real estate market. The main reason it is the biggest is because most people are savers, level 2 investors. Unfortunately, after 1971, when the rules of money changed, savers became the biggest losers, even if they saved money by investing in bonds. Remember that savers, 
bondholders and most people who save money in a retirement plan are people who park their money, investing for the long term, while professional investors move their money. Professional investors invest their money in an asset, get their money back without selling the asset, and move their money on to buy more assets. That is why savers who park their money are the biggest losers. Level 3. The I'm Too Busy Level This is the investor that is too busy to learn about investing. Many investors at this level are highly educated people who are simply too busy with their careers, family, other interests, and vacations. Hence, they prefer to remain financially naive and turn their money over to someone else to manage for them. This is the level that most 401k, IRA, and even very rich investors are at. They simply turn their money over to an expert, and then hope and pray their expert is really an expert. Soon after the financial crisis broke in 2007, many affluent people found out that their trusted expert was not an expert at all, and even worse, could not be trusted. In a matter of months, trillions of dollars of wealth vaporized as real estate and stock markets began to crash. Panicking, these investors called their trusted advisors and begged for salvation. A few rich investors found out that their trusted advisors were extremely sophisticated con men running elaborate Ponzi schemes. A Ponzi scheme is an investment scheme where investors are paid off with new investors' money. The scheme works well as long as there are new investors adding new money to pay off the old investors. In the United States, Bernie Madoff became famous because he made off with billions in rich people's money. There are legal Ponzi schemes and illegal Ponzi schemes. Social Security is a legal Ponzi scheme, as is the stock market. In both instances, the scheme works as long as new money flows into the scheme. If new money stops flowing in, the scheme, be it Madoff scheme, Social Security, or Wall Street, collapses. The problem with the Level 3 investor, the I'm-too-busy investor, is that the person learns nothing if they lose their money. They have no experience except a bad experience. All they can do is blame their advisor, the market, or the government. It is hard to learn from one's mistakes if the person does not know what mistakes were made. Level 4. The I'm a Professional Level This is the do-it-yourself investor in the S-quadrant. Many retirees become Level 4 investors once their working days are over. This investor may buy and sell a few stocks, often from a discount broker. After all, why should they pay a stockbroker's higher commission when they can do their own research and make their own decisions. If they invest in real estate, the do-it-yourselfer will find, fix, and manage their own properties. And if the person is a gold bug, they will buy and store their own gold and silver. In most cases, the do-it-yourselfer has very little, if any, formal financial education. After all, if they can do it themselves, why should they learn anything? If they do attend a course or two, it is often in a narrow subject area. For example, if they like stock trading, they will focus only on stock trading. The same is true for the small real estate investor. 
At the age of nine, when Rich Dad began my financial education with the game of Monopoly, he wanted me to have a bigger picture of the world of investing. The following are some of the basic big-picture asset classes he wanted me to spend my life learning. Business, real estate, paper assets, commodities. As more people realize the need to invest, millions of them will become small level four investors in all four categories. After the 2007 market crash, millions of people have become entrepreneurs starting small businesses, and many are investing in real estate while prices are low. Most, however, are trying their hand at stock trading and stock picking. As the dollar declines in value, millions of people are beginning to save gold and silver instead of dollars. Obviously, those who also invest in their ongoing financial education, taking classes regularly and hiring a coach to enhance their performance, will outpace those who just do it on their own. With a sound financial education, a few of the level four investors will climb to the next level: the level five investor, the capitalist. Level five, the capitalist level. This is the richest people in the world level. The level five investor, a capitalist, is a business owner from the B quadrant investing in the I quadrant. As stated earlier. The level four investor is the do-it-yourselfer from the S quadrant investing in the I quadrant. The following are a few examples of the differences between a level four investor and a level five capitalist investor. One, the S quadrant investor generally uses his or her own money to invest. The B quadrant investor generally uses OPM, other people's money, to invest. This difference is one of the major differences between the level four and level five investor. Two, the S quadrant investor is often a solo investor. The S also stands for smartest. The B quadrant investor invests with a team. B quadrant investors do not have to be the smartest; they just have to have the smartest team. Most people know that two minds are better than one. Yet many S quadrant investors believe they are the smartest people in the world. Three, the S quadrant investor earns less than the B quadrant investor. Four, the S quadrant investor often pays higher taxes than the B quadrant investor. Five, the S quadrant also stands for selfish. The more selfish they are, the more money they make. The B quadrant investor must be generous. The more generous they are, the more money they make. Six, it is difficult to raise money as an S quadrant investor. It is easy for a B quadrant investor to raise capital. Once a person knows how to build a business in the B quadrant, success attracts money. It becomes easy to raise money in the I quadrant if you are successful in the B quadrant. That is the big if. The ease of raising capital is one of the biggest differences between being successful in the S quadrant versus being successful in the B quadrant. Once a person is successful in the B quadrant, life is easy. The challenge is becoming successful. The problem with success in the S quadrant is that raising capital is always difficult. For example, 
it is easy to take a B quadrant business public via selling shares of the business on the stock market. The story of Facebook is a modern example of how easy it is to raise capital for a B quadrant business. If Facebook had remained just a small web consulting firm, it would have been very difficult to raise investor capital. Another example is McDonald's. If McDonald's had remained just a single hamburger store, an S quadrant operation, no one would have invested in it. Once McDonald's began expanding into the B quadrant via a franchise system and was listed on the stock exchange, money poured in. The reason a business sells shares is because the more they share, the richer the entrepreneur becomes. An S quadrant business has a tough time selling shares because the business is too small to share. In real estate, the same is true. When I was a small real estate investor, investing in single-family homes, condos, and small four to thirty-unit apartment buildings, it was difficult getting loans. The moment Kim and I began investing in apartment buildings with over one hundred units, banks were more than willing to lend us much more money. The reason, on one hundred unit plus properties priced in the millions, banks do not finance the investor; they finance the investment. In other words, on properties with over one hundred units, banks look more closely at the investment than the investor. On top of that, bankers would rather lend ten million dollars than ten thousand dollars, since it takes just as much time to lend thousands as it does millions. Remember, bankers love debtors because debtors make the bank rich. Once bankers are satisfied with our ability to own and manage large apartment houses profitably, banks often line up to offer us money, even during a crisis. So the question is, who do level five investors get their money from? The answer is, they get their money from level two and level three investors who save their money in banks and pension plans. Starting with nothing. The reason I started this book with the story of Kim and me being homeless is to let listeners know that not having any money is not an excuse for not growing smarter, thinking bigger, and becoming richer. For most of my life, I have never had enough money. If I had let not having money be an excuse, I would never have become a capitalist. This is important because a true capitalist never has money. That is why they must know how to raise capital and use other people's money to make a lot of money for a lot of people. How to become a capitalist? My mom and dad wanted me to be successful in the E and S quadrants. My dad suggested I go to school, get my PhD, which he did himself, and work for the government or climb a corporate ladder in the E quadrant. My mom, a registered nurse, wanted me to become a medical doctor in the S quadrant. My rich dad suggested I become a capitalist. That meant I had to study the skills required for success in the B and I quadrants. My mom and dad believed in traditional schools such as colleges, law schools, and medical schools. They valued good grades, degrees, and credentials. Such as a law degree or a medical license. My rich dad believed in education, but not the type of education found in traditional schools. 
Rather than go to school, my rich dad signed up for seminars and courses that improved his business and investing skills. He also took personal development courses. He was not interested in grades or credentials. He wanted real-life skills that gave him strengths and operational skills in the B and I quadrants. When I was in high school, my rich dad often flew to Honolulu to attend seminars on entrepreneurship and investing. One day, when I told my poor dad that rich dad was going to a class on sales, my poor dad laughed. He could not understand why anyone would want to learn how to sell, especially if the class hours were not applied as credit to an advanced college degree. My poor dad also looked down upon my rich dad because my rich dad never finished high school. Because I had two dads with differing attitudes on education, I became aware that there is more than one type of education. Traditional schools are for those who want to be successful in the E and S quadrants. Another type of education is for those who want to be successful in the B and I quadrants. In 1973, I returned from Vietnam. It was time for me to make up my mind about which dad I was going to follow. Was I going to follow in my poor dad's footsteps and go back to school to become an E or an S, or take my rich dad's path and become a B or an I, eventually to become a capitalist? In 1973, my rich dad suggested I take classes on real estate investing. He said, "If you want to be a successful capitalist, you must know how to raise capital and how to use debt to make money." That year, I took a three-day workshop on real estate investing. It was the start of my education into the world of the capitalist. A few months later, after looking at over 100 properties, I purchased my first rental property on the island of Maui. Using 100% debt financing and still putting $25 cash flow in my pocket each month, my real-life education had begun. I was learning to use other people's money to make money—a skill a true capitalist must know. In 1974, my contract with the Marine Corps was up, and I took a job with the Xerox Corporation in Hawaii, not because I wanted to climb the corporate ladder. But because Xerox had the best sales training program. Again, this was all part of my rich dad's educational program to train me to become a capitalist. By 1994, Kim and I were financially free, never needing a job or a company or a government retirement plan. Rich dad was correct. My education could set me free, but not the education found in traditional schools. When the markets began to crash in 2007, rather than crash with the rest of the economy, our wealth skyrocketed. As the stock market and real estate markets crashed, great deals floated to the surface, and banks were more than eager to lend us millions of dollars to buy and take over their investments gone bad. In 2010 alone, Kim and I acquired over 87 million dollars in real estate using loans from banks and pension funds. That year was our best year so far. As Rich Dad often said, "If you are a true investor, it does not matter if the markets are going up or coming down. A true investor does well in any market condition." Where are you? Take a moment and assess where you are today. Are you at investor level one? 
If there is nothing in your asset column with no income coming in from your investments and you have too many liabilities, then you are starting at the bottom level, ground zero. If you are deeply in bad debt, your best investment might be to get out of debt. There is nothing wrong with being deeply in debt unless you do nothing. After I lost my first business, I was nearly a million dollars in debt. It took me almost five years to reach zero. In many ways, learning from my mistakes and taking responsibility for my mistakes was the best education I could have asked for. If I had not learned from my mistakes, I would not be where I am today. Kim and I put together a simple program and workbook, How We Got Out of Bad Debt, explaining the process we used to get out of hundreds of thousands of dollars of bad debt. It is a simple, almost painless process. All it takes is some discipline and a willingness to learn. Are you at investor level two? If you are a saver, be very careful, especially if you are saving money in a bank or in a retirement plan. In general, savers are losers. Saving is often a strategy for people who do not want to learn anything. You see, it takes no financial intelligence to save. You can train a monkey to save money. The risk in saving is that you learn little. And if your savings are wiped out, either by market decline or devaluation of the money supply, you wind up without money and without education. Remember that the U.S. dollar has lost 95% of its value since 1971. It will not take long to lose the rest of its value. As stated before, a person can even lose money saving gold if they buy gold at the wrong price. I suggest taking a few courses on investing, either in stocks or real estate, and see if anything interests you. If nothing interests you, then keep saving. Remember that the bond market is the biggest market in the world simply because most people and businesses are savers, not investors. This may sound strange to savers, but the bond market and banks need borrowers. Are you at investor level 3? This level is similar to level 2, except that this level invests in riskier instruments such as stocks, bonds, mutual funds, insurance, and exchange-traded funds. Again, the risk with this level is that, if everything is lost, the investor loses everything and learns nothing. If you are ready to move out of level 3 by investing in your financial education and taking control of your money, then level 4 is a good level for you. Are you at investor level 4? If you are here as a professional investor, congratulations. Very few people invest the time to learn and manage their own money. The key to success at level 4 is lifelong learning, great teachers, great coaches, and like-minded friends. Level 4 investors take control of their lives, knowing that their mistakes are their opportunities to learn and to grow. The fear of investing does not frighten them. It challenges them. Are you at investor level 5? To me, being a capitalist investor at level 5 is like being on top of the world. Literally, the world is your oyster. The world has no borders. In this world of high-speed technology, it is easier than ever to be a capitalist in a world of plenty. If you are at this level, 
keep learning, and keep giving. Remember that true capitalists are generous because a B-quadrant capitalist knows you must give more to receive more. It's your choice. One great thing about freedom is the freedom to choose to live the life you want to live. In 1973, at the age of 26, I knew I did not want to live my life the way my parents chose to live. I did not want to be living below my means, living paycheck to paycheck, trying to make ends meet. To me, this was not living. It may have been good for them, but I knew in my heart that it was not right for me. I also knew that going back to school for advanced degrees was not for me. I knew school did not make people rich because I grew up in a family of advanced degrees. Most of my uncles and aunts had master's degrees, and a few had their doctorates. I did not want to climb a corporate ladder in the E-quadrant either, nor did I want to be a very special specialist in the S-quadrant. So I took the path less traveled and decided to become an entrepreneur and professional investor. I wanted the freedom to travel the world, do business, and invest. It was my choice. I do not recommend that path for everyone, but I do recommend that a person choose. That is what freedom is, the power to choose. I encourage you to look at the five levels of investors and make your choice. Each level has its pros and cons, its advantages and disadvantages. Each level has a price greater than money. If you choose level 1, 2, or 3, there are many other people and organizations qualified to support your investment life at those levels. In 1997, Kim and I created the Rich Dad Company to provide educational games, programs, and coaches for those individuals who seek to be Level 4 and Level 5 investors. A final word on investing. In the world of money, you will often see the term ROI, Return on Investment. Depending upon whom you talk to, ROI will vary. For example, if you talk to a banker, he or she may say, we pay 3% interest on your money. For many people, this may sound good. If you talk to a financial planner, they may say, you can expect a return on your investment of 10% per year. To many people, a 10% return is exciting. To most people, especially those in the E and S quadrants, the higher your return, the greater the risk. So the person accepting a 10% return already assumes there is more risk in that investment than the 3% return from the bank. And there is. Ironically, both the 3% return from the bank and the 10% return from the stock market are extremely high risk. The money in the bank is at risk due to inflation and higher taxes caused by banks printing money. The 10% in the stock market is at risk due to volatility caused by HFT, high-frequency trading, and due to the novice investor investing without insurance. In my world, ROI stands for a return on information. This means that the more information I have, the higher my returns and the lower my risk. I caution you because what I am about to say may sound insane or too good to be true. Yet I assure you, it is true. In my world, 
the world of a level 4 and level 5 investor, an infinite return is expected, and with low risk. An infinite return means money for nothing. In other words, investors receive income without having any of their own money in the investment. In the earlier section, I wrote that I took a real estate course in 1973. After looking at over 100 investments, I purchased a condo on Maui using 100% financing, which means I used none of my own money. I put $25 each month into my pocket. That $25 was an infinite return on my investment, since I had zero invested. And I quote from that section, My real-life education had begun. I was learning to use other people's money to make money, a skill a true capitalist must know. I know $25 a month is not a lot of money, yet it was not the money that was important to me. It was learning a way of thinking, a way of processing information and producing a result. One of the reasons that I have so much money today is simply because I was educated and trained to think differently. If you have read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you may recall that the title of the first chapter is The Rich Don't Work for Money. One of the reasons why those in the E and S quadrants have problems with that statement is because most went to school to learn to work for money. They did not go to school to learn how to have other people's money work for them. When Kim and I started the Rich Dad Company, we borrowed $250,000 from investors. We paid the money back once the company was up and running. Today, the business has returned multi-millions of dollars, not only to Kim and me, but to companies and individuals associated with Rich Dad. As I said, capitalists are generous. My point is that the moment a person knows how to make money out of nothing or with other people's money or a bank's money, they enter a different world. It's a world almost exactly opposite from the E&S Quadrant's world of hard work, high taxes, and low returns on investment. The reason most people believe saving is smart and a 10% return in the stock market is worth it is simply due to a lack of financial education. Your best ROI is not a return on your investment, but a return on your information. This is why a financial education is essential, especially for the uncertainty of the world ahead. Remember this about the word education. Education gives us the power to turn information into meaning. In the information age, we are drenched with financial information. Yet, without financial education, we cannot turn information into useful meaning for our lives. In closing, I say the I-quadrant is the most important quadrant for your future. No matter what you do for a living, how well you do in the I-quadrant will determine your future. In other words, even if you make very little money in the ERS quadrant, financial education in the I-quadrant is your ticket to freedom and financial security. For example, my sister is a Buddhist nun. She earns nearly zero in the S-quadrant. Yet, she attends our investment courses and has steadily been increasing her financial education. Today, her future is bright because she stopped saving money in the bank and buying mutual funds and began investing in real estate and silver. 
In the 10 years between 2000 and 2010, she has made much more money in the I quadrant than she could ever make as a nun in the S quadrant. I am very proud of my sister. She may be a nun by profession, but she does not have to be a poor nun. Before listening further. Before we go on, here's the big question. 1. What level of investor are you? If you are truly sincere about getting wealthy quickly, review the five levels. Each time I review the levels, I see a little of myself in all the levels. I recognize not only strengths, but also character flaws that hold me back. The way to great financial wealth is to strengthen your strengths and address your character flaws. And the way to do that is by first recognizing them rather than pretending that you're perfect. We all want to think the best of ourselves. I've dreamed of being a level 5 capitalist for most of my life. I knew this was what I wanted to become from the moment my rich dad explained the similarities between a stock picker and a person who bets on horses. But after studying the different levels of this list, I could see the character flaws that held me back. I found character flaws in myself from level 4 that would often rear their ugly heads in times of pressure. The gambler in me was good, but it was also not so good. So with the guidance of Kim, my friends, and additional schooling, I began addressing my own character flaws and turning them into strengths. My effectiveness as a level 5 investor improved immediately. Although I do operate today as a level 5 investor, I continue to review the five levels and work on improving myself. Here's another question for you. 2. What level of investor do you want or need to be in the near future? Warning. Anyone with the goal of becoming a level 5 investor must develop their skills first as a level 4 investor. Level 4 cannot be skipped on your path to level 5. Anyone who tries to do this is really a level 3 investor, a gambler. If your answer to question 2 is the same as that in question 1, then you are where you want to be. If you are happy where you are as an investor, then there's not much need to listen any further to this book. One of life's greatest joys is to be happy where you are. Congratulations. However, if you still want and need to know more financially and continue to be interested in pursuing your financial freedom, continue listening. The remaining chapters will focus primarily on the characteristics of someone in the B and I quadrants. In these chapters, you will learn how to move from the left side of the cash flow quadrant to the right side, easily and with low risk. The shift from the left side to the right will continue to focus on intangible assets that make possible the tangible assets on the right side. Before going on, I have one last question. 3. To go from homeless to millionaires in less than 10 years, what level of investor do you think Kim and I had to be? The answer is found in the next chapter where I share some learning experiences from our personal journey to financial freedom. Chapter 6. You cannot see money with your eyes. 
Money is an idea that is more clearly seen with your mind. In late 1974, I purchased a small condominium on the fringes of Waikiki as one of my first investment properties. The price was $56,000 for a cute two-bedroom, one-bath unit in an average building. It was a perfect rental unit, and I knew it would rent quickly. I drove to my rich dad's office, all excited about showing him the deal. He glanced at the documents, and in less than a minute, he looked up and asked, How much money are you losing a month? About $100 a month, I said. Don't be foolish, Rich Dad said. I haven't gone over the numbers, but I can already tell from the written documents that you're losing much more than that. And besides, why in the world would you knowingly invest in something that loses money? Well, the unit looked nice, and I thought it was a good deal. A little paint, and the place would be as good as new, I said. That doesn't justify knowingly losing money smirked Rich Dad. Well, my real estate agent said not to worry about losing money every month. He said that in a few years, the price of this unit will double. In addition, the government gives me a tax break on the money I lose. Besides, it was such a good deal that I was afraid someone else would buy it if I didn't. Rich Dad stood and closed his office door. When he did that, I knew I was about to be chewed out as well as be taught an important lesson. I'd been through these types of educational sessions before. So, how much money are you losing a month? Rich Dad asked again. About $100, I repeated nervously. Rich Dad shook his head as he scanned the documents. The lesson was about to begin. On that day, I learned more about money and investing than I had in all my previous 27 years of life. Rich Dad was happy that I took the initiative and invested in a property, but I'd made some grave mistakes that could have been a financial disaster. However, the lessons I learned from that one investment have made me millions over the years. Money is seen with your mind. It's not what your eyes see, said Rich Dad. A piece of real estate is a piece of real estate. A company's stock certificate is a company's stock certificate. You can see those things, but it's what you can't see that's important. It's the deal, the financial agreement, the market, the management, the risk factors, the cash flow, the corporate structuring, the tax laws, and a thousand other things that make something a good investment or not. He then proceeded to tear the deal apart with questions. Why would you pay such a high interest rate? What do you figure your return on investment to be? How does this investment fit into your long-term financial strategy? What vacancy factor are you using? What is your cap rate? Have you checked the association's history of assessments? Have you figured in management costs? What percentage rate did you use to compute repairs? Did you know that the city has just announced it will be tearing up the roads in that area and changing the traffic pattern? A major thoroughfare will run right in front of your building. Residents are moving to avoid the year-long project. Did you know that? I know the market trend is up today, but do you know what is driving that trend? Business economics or greed? How long do you think the trend will continue up? What happens if this place doesn't rent? And if it doesn't, how long can you keep this place and yourself afloat? And again, what goes on in your head to make you think that losing money 
is a good deal. This really has me worried. It looked like a good deal, I said, deflated. Rich Dad smiled, stood up, and shook my hand. I'm glad you took action, he said. Most people think, but never do. If you do something, you make mistakes, and it's from our mistakes that we learn the most. Remember that anything important can't really be learned in the classroom. It must be learned by taking action, making mistakes, and then correcting them. That's when wisdom sets in. I felt a little better and was ready to learn. Rich Dad went on to explain that people look at a piece of real estate or the name of a stock and often make their decision based on what their eyes see, what a broker tells them, or on a hot tip from a fellow worker. They often buy emotionally instead of rationally. That's why nine out of ten investors don't make money, said Rich Dad. While they might not lose money, they don't make any either. They just sort of break even, making some and losing some. That's because they invest with their eyes and emotions rather than with their minds. Many people invest because they want to get rich quickly. So instead of becoming investors, they wind up being dreamers, hustlers, gamblers, and crooks. The world is filled with them. So let's sit down, go back over this losing deal you just bought, and I'll teach you how to turn it into a winning deal. I'll begin to teach your mind to see what your eyes can't. From bad to good. The next morning, I went back to the real estate agent, rejected the deal as it stood, and reopened negotiation. It wasn't a pleasant process, but I learned a lot. Three days later, I returned to see Rich Dad. The price of the condo stayed the same, and the agent got his full commission because he deserved it. But while the price remained the same, the terms of the investment were vastly different. By renegotiating the interest rate, payment terms, and the amortization period, instead of losing money, I was now certain of making a net profit of $80 per month, even after the management fee and an allowance for vacancy was factored in. I could even lower my rent and still make money if the market went bad. I could definitely raise the rent if the market got better. I estimated that you were going to lose at least $150 per month, said Rich Dad, probably more. If you had continued to lose $150 per month based on your salary and expenses, how many of these deals could you afford? Barely one, I replied. Most months, I don't have an extra $150. If I had done the original deal, I would have struggled financially every month, even after the tax breaks. I might even have had to take an extra job to pay for this investment. And now, how many of these deals at $80 positive cash flow can you afford? asked Rich Dad. I smiled and said, as many as I can get my hands on. Rich Dad nodded in approval. Now go out there and get your hands on more of them. A few years later, the real estate prices in Hawaii did skyrocket. But instead of having only one property go up in value, I had seven double in value. That is the power of a little financial intelligence. You can't do that. When I took my new offer back to the real estate agent, all he said to me was, You can't do that.
What took the longest time was convincing the agent to start thinking about how we could do what I wanted done. In any event, there were many lessons I learned from this one investment, and one of those lessons was to realize that when someone says to you, you can't do that, they may have one finger pointing forward at you, but three fingers are pointing backward at them. Rich Dad taught me that you can't do that doesn't necessarily mean you can't. It more often means they can't. A classic example took place many years ago when people told the Wright brothers, you can't do that. Thank goodness the Wright brothers didn't listen. $1.4 trillion looking for a home. Every day, trillions of dollars are moved around the planet electronically. There is more money being created and available today than ever before. The problem is that money is invisible. Today, the bulk of it is electronic. So when people look for money with their eyes, they fail to see anything. Most people struggle to live paycheck to paycheck, and yet $1.4 trillion flies around the world every day looking for someone who wants it. It's looking for someone who knows how to take care of it, nurture it, and grow it. If you know how to take care of money, money will flock to you and be thrown at you. People will beg you to take it. But if you don't know how to care for money, money will stay away from you. Remember Rich Dad's definition of financial intelligence. It's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep, how hard it works for you, and how many generations you keep it for. The Blind Leading the Blind The average person is 95% eyes and only 5% mind when they invest, said Rich Dad. If you want to become a professional in the B and I quadrants, you need to train your eyes to be only 5% and train your mind to see the other 95%. Rich Dad went on to explain that people who train their minds to see money have tremendous power over people who don't. He was adamant about whom I took financial advice from. The reason most people struggle financially is because they take advice from people who are also mentally blind to money. It's the classic tale of the blind leading the blind. If you want money to come to you, you must know how to take care of it. If money isn't first in your head, it won't stick to your hands. If it doesn't stick to your hands, then money, and people with money, will stay away from you. Train your brain to see money. So what is the first step in training your brain to see money? The answer is easy. It's financial literacy. It begins with the ability to understand the words and the number systems of capitalism. If you don't understand the words or the numbers, you might as well be speaking a foreign language. And in many cases, each quadrant represents a foreign language. If you look at the cash flow quadrant, each quadrant is like a different country. They don't all use the same words, and if you don't understand the words, you won't understand the numbers. For example, if a medical doctor says, your systolic is 120 and your diastolic is 80, is that good or bad? Is that all you need to know for your health? The answer is obviously no, but it's a start. It's like asking, my stock's P.E. is 12 and my apartment's cap rate is 12. 
Is this all I need to know for my wealth? Again, the answer is no, but it's a start. At least we're beginning to speak the same words and use the same numbers. And that is the beginning of financial literacy, which is the basis of financial intelligence. It starts with knowing the words and numbers. The doctor is speaking from the S quadrant, and the investor is speaking with the words and numbers of the I quadrant. They might as well be speaking different languages. I disagree when someone says to me it takes money to make money. In my opinion, the ability to make money with money begins with understanding the words and the numbers. As my rich dad always said, if money is not first in your head, it won't stick to your hands. Know what real risk is. The second step in training your brain to see money is to learn to recognize what real risk is. When people say to me that investing is risky, I simply say, investing is not risky. Being uneducated is risky. Investing is much like flying. If you've been to flight school and spent a number of years gaining experience, then flying is fun and exciting. But if you've never been to flight school, I'd leave the flying to someone else. Bad advice is risky. Rich Dad firmly believed that any financial advice was better than no financial advice. He was a man with an open mind. He was courteous and listened to many people, but he relied ultimately on his own financial intelligence to make his decisions. If you don't know anything, then any advice is better than no advice. But if you can't tell the difference between bad advice and good advice, then that is risky. Rich Dad firmly believed that most people struggle financially because they operate on financial information handed down from parent to child, and most people don't come from financially sound families. He often said, bad financial advice is risky, and most of the bad advice is handed out at home, not from what is said, but from what is done. Children learn by example more than words. Your advisors are only as smart as you. Rich Dad said, Your advisors can only be as smart as you are. If you are not smart, they can't tell you that much. If you are financially well-educated, competent advisors can give you more sophisticated financial advice. If you are financially naive, they must by law offer you only safe and secure financial strategies. If you are an unsophisticated investor, they can only offer low-risk, low-yield investments. They often recommend diversification for unsophisticated investors. Few advisors choose to take the time to teach you because their time is money. So, if you will take it upon yourself to become financially educated and manage your money well, then a competent advisor can inform you about investments and strategies that few will ever see. But first, you must do your part to get educated. Always remember, your advisor can only be as smart as you. Is your banker lying to you? Rich Dad had several bankers he dealt with. They were an important part of his financial team. While he was close friends with and respected his bankers, he always felt he had to watch out for his own best interests, just as he expected the bankers to look out for their own best interests.
After my 1974 investment experience, he asked me this. When a banker says that your house is an asset, is he telling you the truth? Since most people are not financially literate and don't know the game of money, they often must take the opinion and advice of people they tend to trust. If you are not financially literate, then you need to trust someone you hope is. Many people invest or manage their money based on someone else's recommendations more than their own. And that is risky. They're not lying. They're just not telling you the whole truth. The fact is that when a banker says your house is an asset, they're not really lying to you. They're just not telling you the whole truth. While your house is an asset, they simply don't say whose asset it is. If you read financial statements, it's easy to see that your house is not your asset. It is the bank's asset. Remember my rich dad's definitions of an asset and a liability from rich dad, poor dad. An asset puts money in my pocket. A liability takes money out of my pocket. People on the left side don't really need to know the difference. Most of them are happy to feel secure in their jobs, have a nice house they think they own, are proud of, and think they're in control of. Nobody will take it away from them as long as they make those payments. But people on the right side need to know the difference. Being financially literate and financially intelligent means being able to understand the big picture of money. Financially astute people know that a mortgage doesn't show up as an asset, but as a liability on your balance sheet. Your mortgage actually shows up as an asset on a balance sheet across town. It shows up as an asset on the bank's balance sheet. Anyone who has taken accounting knows that a balance sheet must balance. But where does it balance? It doesn't really balance on your balance sheet. If you look at the bank's balance sheet, now it balances. Now it makes sense. That is B&I accounting. But this is not the way it's taught in basic accounting. In accounting, you'd show the value of your home as an asset and the mortgage as a liability. Also, an important point to note is that the value of your home is an opinion that fluctuates with the market, while your mortgage is a definite liability not affected by the market. For B and I, the value of your home is not considered an asset because it does not generate cash flow. What happens if you pay off your mortgage? Many people ask me, what happens if I pay off my mortgage? Is my house an asset then? And my reply is, in most cases, the answer is still no. It's still a liability. There are several reasons why this is true. One is maintenance and general upkeep. Property is like a car. Even if you own it free and clear, it still costs money to operate. And once things start to break, everything begins to break. In most cases, people pay for repairs on their house and their car with after-tax dollars. A person in the B and I quadrants only includes property as an asset if it generates income through positive cash flow. But the main reason a house, even without a mortgage, is still a liability is because you still don't own it. The government still taxes you even if you own it. Just stop paying your property taxes and you'll find out who really owns your property.
That is where tax lien certificates come from, which I wrote about in Rich Dad Poor Dad. Tax lien certificates are an excellent way to receive up to 16% interest on your money. If homeowners don't pay their property taxes, the government charges them interest on the taxes owed at rates from 10% to 50%. Talk about being taken to the cleaners. If you don't pay the property taxes and someone like me pays them for you, then in many states you owe me the taxes plus the interest. If you don't pay me within a certain amount of time, I get to take your house just for the money I put up. In most states, property taxes take priority in repayment, even before the bank's mortgage. I've had the opportunity to buy houses I paid the taxes on for just a few thousand dollars. The Definition of Real Estate Again, to be able to see money, you must see it with your mind, not your eyes. In order to train your mind, you must know the real definitions of words and the system of numbers. By now, you should know the difference between an asset and a liability, and you should know the definition of the word mortgage, which is an agreement until death, and the word finance, which means penalty. You will now learn the origin of the words real estate and a popular financial vehicle called derivatives. Many people think derivatives are new, but in reality, they're ages old. A simple definition of derivative is something that comes from something else. An example of a derivative is orange juice. Orange juice is a derivative of an orange. I used to think that real estate meant real or something that was tangible. My rich dad explained to me that it really comes from the Spanish word real, which means royal. El Camino Real means the royal road. Real estate means the royal estate. Once the agrarian age came to an end and the industrial age began around 1500, power was no longer based on the land and agriculture. The monarchs realized they had to change in response to the land reform acts that allowed peasants to own the land. So, royalty created derivatives, such as taxes on land ownership and mortgages, as a way of allowing commoners to finance their land. Taxes and mortgages are derivatives because they are derived from the land. Your banker would not call the mortgage a derivative. They would say it is secured by the land. Different words, similar meanings. So once royalty realized that money was no longer in the land, but in the derivatives that came from the land, the monarchs set up banks to handle the increased business. Today, land is still called real estate because, no matter how much you pay for it, it never really belongs to you. It still belongs to the royals. What is your interest rate? Really? Rich Dad fought and negotiated tough for every single point of interest he paid. He asked me this question, When a banker tells you your interest rate is 8% per annum, is it really? I found out it's not if you learn to read numbers. Let's say you buy a $100,000 home, make a down payment of $20,000, and borrow the remaining $80,000 at 8% interest with a 30-year term from your bank. 
In five years, you will pay a total of $35,220 to the bank, $31,276 for interest, and only $3,944 for debt reduction. If you take the loan to term, or 30 years, you will have paid $211,323 total principal and interest, less what you originally borrowed, $80,000. The total interest you will have paid, $131,323. By the way, that $211,323 doesn't include property taxes and insurance on the loan. Funny, $131,323 seems to be a little bit more than 8% of $80,000. It's more like 160% in interest over 30 years. As I said, they're not lying. They're just not telling the whole truth. And if you can't read numbers, you'd really never know. And if you're happy with your house, you'll never really care. But of course, the industry knows that in a few years, you're going to want a new house, a bigger house, a smaller house, a vacation house, or a refinance on your mortgage. They know it, and in fact, they count on it. Industry Average In the banking industry, a seven-year average is used as the life expectancy for a mortgage. That means banks expect the average person to buy a new house or refinance every seven years. And that means, in this example, they expect to get their original $80,000 back every seven years plus $43,291 in interest. And that's why... It is called a mortgage, which comes from the French word mortier, or agreement until death. The reality is that most people will continue to work hard, get pay raises, and buy new houses with new mortgages. On top of that, the government gives a tax break to encourage taxpayers to buy more expensive houses, which means higher property taxes for the government. Every time I watch television, I see commercials where handsome athletes smile and tell you to take all your credit card debt and roll it into a bill consolidation loan. That way, you can pay off those credit cards and carry a new loan at a lower interest rate. They tell you why it's financially intelligent to do this. A bill consolidation loan is a smart move on your part because the government gives you a tax deduction for the interest payments you make on your home mortgage. Viewers, thinking they see the light, run down to their finance company, refinance their home, pay off their credit cards, and feel intelligent. A few weeks later, they're shopping and see a new dress, a new lawnmower, or realize their kid needs a new bicycle or they need to take a vacation because they're exhausted. They have excellent credit, they pay their bills, their little heart goes pitter-patter, and they say to themselves, Oh, go on, you deserve it you can pay it off a little every month. Emotions overpower logic, and the credit card comes out of hiding. As I said, when bankers say your house is an asset, they are not lying. When the government gives you a tax break for being in debt, it is not because they're concerned about your financial future. The government is concerned about its financial future. So when your banker, your accountant, your attorney, and your teachers tell you that your house is an asset, 
they just fail to say whose asset it is. What about savings? Are they assets? Now, your savings really are assets. That's the good news. But again, if you read financial statements, you'll understand the total picture. While it's true that your savings are assets, when you look across town at the bank's balance sheet, your savings show up as a liability. Why are your savings and checkbook balances a liability to banks? Because they have to pay you interest for your money, and it costs them money to safeguard it. If you can grasp the significance of these words, you might begin to better understand what the eyes cannot see about the game of money. Why you don't get a tax break for saving money. If you notice, you get a tax break for buying a house and going into debt, but you don't get a tax break for saving money. Have you ever wondered why? I'm not sure either, but I imagine that one big reason is because your savings are a liability to banks. Why would they ask the government to pass a law that would encourage you to put even more money in their bank, money that is a liability to them? They don't need your savings. Besides, banks really don't need your savings. They don't need much in deposits because they can magnify money at least ten times. If you put one dollar in the bank, by law, the bank can lend out ten dollars and, depending upon the reserve limits imposed by the central bank, possibly much more. That means your single dollar suddenly becomes ten dollars or more. It's magic. When my rich dad showed me that, I fell in love with the idea. At that point, I knew that I wanted to own a bank and not go to school to become a banker. On top of that, the bank may pay less than 1% interest on that $1. In better economic times, it could be 5%, and you, as a consumer, would feel secure because the bank is paying you something on your money. Banks see this as good customer relations because... If you have savings with them, you may come in and borrow money, too. They want you to do this because they can then charge 9% or more on what you borrow. While you may make less than 1% on your dollar, the bank can make 9% or more on the $10 of debt your single dollar has generated. Recently, I received a new credit card offer that advertised 8.9% interest. But since I understood the legal jargon in the fine print, I saw it was really 23%. Needless to say, I took a pass. They get your savings anyway. The other reason they don't offer a tax break for savings is more obvious. If you can read the numbers and see which way the cash is flowing, you'll notice that they'll get your savings anyway. The money you could be saving in your asset column is flowing instead out of your liability column in the form of interest payments on your mortgage. This ends up in the bank's asset column. That's why they don't need the government to give you a tax incentive to save. They'll get your savings anyway in the form of interest payments on debt. Politicians aren't about to mess with the system because the bank's Insurance companies, building industry, brokerage houses, and others contribute a lot of money to their campaigns, and the politicians know the name of the game. The Name of the Game In 1974, 
my rich dad was upset because the game was played against me, and I didn't know it. I had bought this investment property and had taken a losing position, yet I'd been led to believe it was a winning position. I'm glad you entered the game, said rich dad, but because no one has ever told you what the game is, you've just been suckered over to the losing team. Rich Dad then explained the basics of the game. The name of the game of capitalism is Who is Indebted to Whom? Once I knew the game, I could be a better player instead of someone who just had the game run all over them. The more people you are indebted to, the poorer you are. The more people you're indebted to, the poorer you are, said Rich Dad, and the more people you have indebted to you, the wealthier you are. That's the game. As I said, I struggled to keep my mind open, so I stayed silent and let him explain. We're all in debt to someone else. The problems occur when the debt gets out of balance. Unfortunately, the poor people of this world have been run over so hard by the game that they often can't get any deeper into debt. The same is true for poor countries. The world simply takes from the poor, the weak, and the financially uninformed. If you have too much debt, the world takes everything you have, including your time, your work, your home, your life, your confidence, even your dignity, if you let them. I don't make the rules, but I do know the game, and I play it well. I'll explain the game to you if you want to learn to play. Then, after you've mastered the game, you can decide what to do with what you know. Money is debt. Rich Dad went on to explain that even our currency isn't an instrument of equity, but an instrument of debt. Every dollar used to be backed by gold or silver, but is now an IOU guaranteed to be paid by the taxpayers of the issuing country. As long as the rest of the world has confidence in the American taxpayer to work and pay for this IOU called money, the world has confidence in our dollar. If that key element of money, confidence, suddenly disappears, the economy comes down like a house of cards. Take the example of the German Weimar government marks that became utterly worthless just before World War II. As one story goes, an elderly woman was pushing a wheelbarrow full of marks to buy a loaf of bread. When she turned her back, someone stole the wheelbarrow and left the pile of worthless money all over the street. That's why most money today is known as fiat money, money that cannot be converted to something tangible like gold or silver. The money is only good as long as people have confidence in the government backing it. Today, much of the global economy is based on debt and confidence. As long as we all keep holding hands and no one breaks ranks, everything will be fine. By the way, the word fine is my acronym for feeling insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Who is indebted to whom? Going back to 1974, when I was learning how to buy that $56,000 condo, my rich dad taught me an important lesson on how to structure deals. Who is indebted to whom is the name of the game, said rich dad, and somebody just stuck you with the debt. It's like going to dinner with ten friends. You go to the restroom, and when you come back, the bill is there, 
but all ten friends are gone. If you're going to play the game, then you had better understand it, know the rules, speak the same language, and know with whom you're playing. If you don't, instead of playing the game, the game will be played on you. It's only a game. At first, I got angry at what Rich Dad was saying, but I listened and did my best to understand. Finally, he put it into a context that I could understand. You love playing football, don't you? He asked. I nodded my head. I love the game, I said. Well, money is my game, said Rich Dad. I love the money game. But for many people, money isn't a game, I said. That's correct, said Rich Dad. For most people, it's survival. For most people, money is a game they're forced to play, and they hate it. Unfortunately, the more civilized we get, the more money becomes a part of our lives. Rich Dad drew the cash flow quadrant. Just look at this as a tennis court, football field, or soccer field. If you're going to play the money game, which team do you want to be on? The E's, S's, B's, or I's? Or which side of the court do you want to be on? The right side or the left? I quickly pointed to the right side. If you take on debt and risk, you should be paid. Good, said Rich Dad. That's why you can't go out there to play the game and believe some sales agent when he tells you that to lose $150 a month for 30 years is a good deal because the government will give you a tax break for losing money and he expects the price of real estate to go up. You simply can't play the game with that mindset. While those opinions might come true, that's just not the way the game is played on the right side of the cash flow quadrant. Somebody is telling you to go into debt, take all the risks, and pay for it. People on the left side think that's a good idea, but not the people on the right. I was shaking a little. Look at it my way, said Rich Dad. You're willing to pay $56,000 for this condo in the sky. You're signing for the debt and taking all the risk. The tenant pays less in rent than what it costs to live there so you're subsidizing that person's housing. Does that make sense to you? I shook my head. This is the way I play the game, said Rich Dad. From now on, if you take on debt and risk, then you should get paid. Got that? I nodded my head. Making money is common sense, said Rich Dad. It's not rocket science. But unfortunately, when it comes to money, common sense is uncommon. A banker tells you to take on debt so the government can give you a tax break. That doesn't make fundamental economic sense. Then a real estate agent tells you to sign the papers because he can find a tenant who will pay you less than you're paying, but, in his opinion, the value of the condo will go up. If that makes sense to you, then you and I don't share the same common sense. I just stood there. I heard everything he said, and I had to admit that I'd gotten so excited by what I thought looked like a good deal that my logic went out the window and I didn't analyze the deal. Because the deal looked good, I had become emotional with greed and excitement, and I was no longer able to hear what the numbers and the words were telling me. It was then that Rich Dad gave me an important rule that he has always used. 
Your profit is made when you buy, not when you sell. Rich Dad had to be certain that whatever debt or risk he took on, it made sense from the day he bought it. It had to make sense if the economy got worse, and it had to make sense if the economy got better. He never bought on tax tricks or crystal ball forecasts of the future. A deal had to make sound economic sense in good times and in bad. I was beginning to understand the game of money as he saw it. Clearly, the game was to see others become indebted to you and to be careful to whom you became indebted. Today, I still hear his words. If you take on risk and debt, make sure you get paid for it. Rich Dad had debt, but he was careful when he took it on. If you take on debt personally, make sure it's small. If you take on large debt, make sure someone else is paying for it. He saw the game of money and debt as a game that is played on you, played on me, played on everyone. It's played from business to business, and it's played from country to country. To him, it was only a game. But for most people, money isn't a game. It's survival. And because no one explained the game to them, they still believe bankers who say a house is an asset. The Importance of Facts Versus Opinions Rich Dad continued his lesson. If you want to be successful on the right side, you've got to know the difference between facts and opinions. You can't blindly accept financial advice the way people on the left side do. You must know the numbers. The numbers will tell you the facts. Your financial survival depends upon facts, not some friend or advisor's wordy opinions. I don't understand. What's the big deal about something being a fact or an opinion? Is one better than the other? No, replied Rich Dad. Just know when something is a fact and when something is an opinion. Still puzzled, I stood there with a confused look on my face. What is your family's home worth? asked Rich Dad. Oh, I know, I replied quickly. My parents are thinking about selling, so they had a real estate agent come in and do an appraisal. They said the house was worth $36,000. That means my dad's net worth increased by $16,000 because he only paid $20,000 for it five years ago. So is the appraisal and your dad's net worth a fact or an opinion? asked Rich Dad. I thought about it for a while and understood what he was getting at. Both are opinions, aren't they? Rich Dad nodded his head. Very good. Most people struggle financially because they spend their lives using opinions rather than facts when making financial decisions. Opinions such as, Your house is an asset. The price of real estate always goes up. Blue chip stocks are your best investment. It takes money to make money. Stocks have always outperformed real estate. You should diversify your portfolio. You have to be dishonest to be rich. Investing is risky. Play it safe. I sat there deep in thought, realizing that most of what I heard about money at home was really people's opinions, not facts. Is gold an asset? asked Rich Dad, snapping me out of my daydream. Yes, of course, I replied. It's the only real money that has withstood the test of time. See, there you go again, smiled Rich Dad. 
all you're doing is repeating someone else's opinion about what is an asset rather than checking out the facts. Gold is only an asset, by my definition, if you buy it for less than you sell it for, Rich Dad said slowly. In other words, if you bought it for $100 and sold it for $200, then it was an asset. But if you bought one ounce for $200 and you sold it for $100, then gold in this transaction was a liability. It is the actual financial numbers of the transaction that ultimately tell you the facts. In reality, the only thing that is an asset or liability is you, because only you can make decisions that make gold an asset or a liability. That is why financial education is so important. I've seen so many people take a perfectly good business or piece of real estate and turn it into a financial nightmare. Many people do the same in their personal lives. They take hard-earned money and create a lifetime of financial liabilities. I was even more confused, a little hurt inside, and wanted to argue. Rich Dad was toying with my brain. Many a man has been suckered because he didn't know the facts. Every day, I hear horror stories of someone who lost all their money because they thought an opinion was a fact. It's okay to use an opinion when making a financial decision, but you must know the difference. Millions of people have made life decisions based upon opinions handed down from generation to generation, and then they wonder why they struggle financially. What kind of opinions, I asked. Rich Dad chuckled to himself before he answered, Well, let me give you a few common ones we have all heard, 